Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media. So, if you value this show, and podcast in general, as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. The best way we can spread is by word of mouth. That said, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on whichever platform you get this show. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get the show, please subscribe and review. The same goes for Muckraker Media. If you like this show, there are others on the network tailored to your interest. Go check them out at muckrakermedia.org. M-U-C-K-R-A-K-E-R Media. This simple act, four minutes of your time, will help the show more than any dollar amount could, and it will help you curate a podcast feed you're proud of. So once again, wherever you get Dirty History, please subscribe, like, review, and be sure to check out Muckraker Media. And with that, on with the show. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. On this episode, I sit down with science journalist Ian Graber-Steele. You may have read one of his many articles in Gizmodo, Nature, NPR, The Verge, Scientific American, Slate, Vulture, or Popular Science. But what really interested me in Ian is his eclectic taste as a writer. It pops up across his work work. I may add that often aligns with the values of Dirty History and its producer, Muckraker Media. In this conversation, we covered a wide range of topics, from uh, Sci-Hub to the larger implications of the open source movement to the, I don't want to say controversy, but the discussion between popular science and academic science. Of course, we mentioned Carl Sagan. We uh, discussed outreach as a combatant to misinformation, and we also spoke about Henry Ford and his anti-Semitic thought that spread through his mouthpiece newspaper. I hope you find this conversation as fascinating as I did, and of course, I hope it makes you think. And if it did, I want you to let us know. The conversation doesn't have to end simply because the microphones aren't rolling. So like, comment, review, let's hear from you. Let's get a good conversation started. And as a general disclaimer, this was, of course, done remotely and uh, over Skype. So the audio quality may dip in, in and out. Um, at the very beginning, it is a little off-putting, but I do promise that it gets better the first couple minutes into the show. So I just want to give you a heads up with that. All right, so let's uh, let's get down to it. All right, so let's go in three, two, one. Ian Graber Steele, everyone. So I got to admit, you got me curious about something. It, it, it seems like you cover a, a, a wide range of topics. I mean, looking over some of your articles, I see a story on automated weather stations, a discussion on the clinical trial system. You consider reusable bags, people's lawns, an article on Olympic athletes and non-alcoholic beer. I mean, you have an eclectic taste. So I, I'm, I'm really curious on how you approach a story. Where, where do you start when you're working with a new story? I think for me, there's, there's a fundamental view I have that a lot of times um, when it comes to scientific writing, we have a tendency to lose track of what made us interested in science in the first place. Like I'm willing to bet, uh, actually, let me just ask you, what, when did you get interested in science? Like, if you had to point to a thing that made you get interested in science 
in the first place, what would it be? See, actual science or actual mathematics in terms of doing the actual work never really interested me. It was always the history of those subjects and of those fields that were far more interesting because I, I like the human drama behind the people who were doing the work. But I mean, of course, I'm always interested in just natural phenomena. I mean, you, you got to ask your questions about climate change and whatnot. So really college is when I came into having a love for science, but not necessarily a grounded understanding of the principles. I mean, I, I love the all the writers, all the writers I really enjoy, like, for example, John Dewey, who's a philosopher and an educational theorist, but he really harps on the scientific method as it could apply to schools. So I, I find the field interesting, but I, I, I don't have a working knowledge of the actual nitty gritty in the fields. If all right. Well, for, for me, and I think that for a lot of people, you know, maybe it was something like dinosaurs. And for you, you said you liked the idea of story behind it. You know, back when I was a kid, I used to carry around a, a dinosaur encyclopedia. And I think the answer ultimately is similar for a lot of people. And that would that moment when we ultimately, when we first get interested by a scientific story or topic, we get interested simply because it's interesting. It's yeah. an inherently curious thing that we want to know more about. You show a kid a picture of a giant lizard looking thing with feather covered in it and you know a jaw the size of its head, it wants to know more about it. And I kind of try to keep to that ethos. A lot of times we have a tendency to focus on scientific stories that are that have the best news hook. I mean, case in point right now, I feel like it's been a bit of a pain to uh, get anything published that isn't directly related to COVID or coronavirus, mm -hmm. but Ultimately, that's, you know, the newsiness of a topic is not the thing that inherently gets us interested. And I think that that's a principle that's guided a lot of my writing is rather than focus on what stories have the sexiest news hook, I tend to like to contextualize things uh, that I already know about. You know, people have a, a vague awareness of, you know, Charles Darwin, of, of uh, the origin of species and you know how it came about, but they don't know about his struggle with uh, with anxiety and with sickness and how we likely never would have gotten the origin of species were it not for uh, his his issues with anxiety sort of sealing him away uh, and forcing him to work on on uh, developing his base of scientific expertise. It's those sort of things I, I prefer contextualizing stuff or just exploring topics that. They might not have a news hook, like you mentioned the, the article on sour beer. This That has no relevance to anything in particular, but when you hear, oh, some people made a beer with wasp that was cultured from the gut bacteria, or from yeast that was cultured from the gut bacteria of wasp that feed on fruit, or cultured from a guy's beard, you, you inherently want to know more just because it's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. That's pretty much it. I just try and look for things that I think are interesting or could use some context. So you you, t you typically work from a place of interest. You have to be interested in the story before you would consider writing it. I would say so, yeah. Most of it, I'd say an exception might be writing about something that I think is overlooked that I would consider a, a crisis. Mm -hmm. Like I did a article for Nature uh, about a year to change ago on 
uh, a hepatitis B crisis in Sub-Saharan Africa. I never had a, a particular interest in hepatitis B, but during a random interview when a researcher told me that it was easier for people with HIV to get antiretroviral drugs that could also work for hepatitis B than it would be for regular patients, just because you know, the money is there and it's been allocated for HIV, but it's not there for hepatitis B. You know, when I heard that simple statement, that sent me down a rabbit hole uh, because you know, I, I just figured that there's a, a crisis here that isn't getting the attention it deserves. So it's usually either one of those two things. I think that something just has the potential to be reported in an interesting way, or I believe that you know, it merits um, a wider viewing simply because it's it's a rather important topic that people aren't paying attention to. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And you kind of, you piqued my interest just by talking about that story. That seems like a massive oversight that, so people with HIV are more likely to get the hepatitis B drug than people with H hepatitis B, you said? I'm just making sure I clarified that. Yeah, uh, throughout, uh, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, actually, Worldwide, if you look at hepatitis B, it kills more people than tuberculosis, more people than malaria, more people than HIV. Uh, I think it's something like 1.34 million people die annually. And while there's been huge strides made in um, the Western uh, or the uh, throughout China, throughout the whole Pacific region, uh, throughout America and Europe, and lowering rates of hepatitis B, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's still lagging behind, and there's a, a growing industry for generic uh, antiretroviral drugs that can treat it, but ultimately in a lot of places the best way to get such antiretrovirals is to have HIV because you can use a lot of the same uh, medicines, even if they're older ones like um, lamivudine I think is one off the top of my head, you can get access to that if you have HIV because there's no shortage of, of funding that's been directed oftentimes mm -hmm. through uh, UN endeavors to making sure people with HIV get those drugs. But if you have hepatitis B, in short, in a lot of places, you're screwed. Huh. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So writing from a place of interest, because that's something that's, an, I would say, incredibly lucky to be able to write about things you're interested in. Do you ever have to work on assignment where you don't get to have a choice in the topics that you're writing about, or do you mostly work on what's interesting to you? I would say yes and no. Um, so I typically, if you look at my publishing, I've written for a lot of places, but if you notice, I'm not exactly a columnist for, or too regular in a lot of places. I've had yeah. since where I've um, written news regularly for Discover or for a couple of other outlets, but that was mostly because I had a pretty close contact with uh, an editor there. and. Doing those sorts of news stories, I don't particularly mind them. I mean, mm -hmm. even if it's not something I'm all that interested in, usually news stories are you know between 500 and 750 words, and usually the topic is still compelling enough. Yeah. So I, I definitely don't mind that, uh, but I tend to actively seek out stories that I find interesting. But of course, being a freelancer, that comes with the downside of allocating way too much time towards chasing down those stories and ultimately ending up broke. <laughs> well, well, that that that's that's a great point, and that kind of kind of segues into another point, which is what what ultimately drove you to pursue journalism, because you just mentioned that 
you're, you're not no one's gonna make a you know a pretty penny off of it so it has to be from a place of interest and love i assume i was in the military um i was a u.s army intelligence analyst and i ended up uh leaving the military a little bit shorter than i expected and gotta always love writing short stories and when i landed back on my rear end in in illinois uh, in 2015, you know, I'd just been divorced from the army and I, I was feeling a bit lost and I'd always loved writing. Short stories were my, my favorite thing, poetry as well. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to make a living writing short stories. And then that's when I realized, oh, that's right. Um, Hemingway uh, died a while back and he'd be starving to death today if he tried to make a living off short stories. So that was right around the Paris Climate Summit, and I just noticed something people weren't talking about, um, some loopholes regarding biomass uh, energy, which is essentially burning wood pellets uh, mm -hmm. being classified as renewable. Um, and I figured, well, if nobody's talking about it, let me see what I can't do. And that's when I just sort of jumped into it um, whole hog. I, started doing research on smaller publications I could pitch to, and I ended up finding Pacific Standard, which sadly is uh, defunct now, but it had poached some staff from the Atlantic, so I knew they had good at a, good standards in terms of the, the quality of articles they wrote, but they were small and approachable, and I pitched them. I got lucky enough uh, for an editor, Ted Scheinman, uh, to go ahead and give me a chance, and you know, ever since then, I've always gravitated towards different areas of science. There are some things I typically stay away from. I don't go in too much into physics-based things. I don't uh, cover cybersecurity too closely, but anything with biology or astronomy, I absolutely love to cover. So there's, there's definitely, uh, I've always loved science. That's always been something in my heart, but in terms of actually writing my background originally came from uh, short stories that i just used to write in a notebook yes yeah, so it's like this uh practicality meshed with your inherent desire this is like the perfect field for you to go into it's the marrying of your two loves i suppose <laughs> now you you mentioned uh short stories and hemingway and I, i'm staring at on my desk I have, oh, I have my bookshelves, but I have three books that sit on my desk. I have The Secret Life of Salvador Dali, which is one of, it was, the reason it's on my desk is it's one of the first editions, and so it's an older book. And then the second one is The Fifth Column in the First 49 Stories by Ernest Hemingway, which is my favorite work of Hemingway's. This is short stories. And uh, per personally, I, I would have died happy if he, uh, if he mostly only wrote short stories. I, I say that, but the Old Man with the Sea, Old Man in the Sea is one of my favorite books ever. I keep rambling, but I want to know uh, any writers that had a major impact on you and your style. Hmm. I, you know, I feel like a, like a lot of young men who get into writing and get introduced to Hemingway at some point. For a while, I tried to imitate him uh, with writing. Um, I read a bit of Faulkner, uh, a lot of the, the transcendentalists. Uh, I, I was particularly fond of Robert Frost as well. I still have a tattoo on my arm that says uh, miles to go before I sleep. Um, but it wasn't just authors, I would say. I mean, I grew up on a lot of science fiction and on anime. And I mean, even like right now, I am 
working on a, a story that, you know, originally it was sort of a, just a psychological short story, but I branched it out into science fiction after rewatching uh, Ghost in the Shell a couple of years back, I decided I wanted to take another bend with it. So it wasn't just sort of classic literature. A lot of it was surprisingly enough, uh, bits of, of anime, bits of science fiction works as well. So the, the reason I asked is because I, I, ori I originally became familiar with you and your writing through an article you did for The Verge in 2018. It was about uh, Sci-Hub and its founder, Alexandra Elbican, and I, I guess really about open, open access broadly. And, and if I may, the, the writing on that article is fantastic. I think you set the scene and the mood for the entire article in the first paragraph. And I have a few questions about it, but before we do that, I think the your first paragraph of that article is uh, useful context for our audience. So if you don't mind, I'd like to quote it, if that's cool with you. Oh, sure thing. So you wrote in the first paragraph of this, quote, in cramped quarters at Russia's higher school of economics, shared by four students and a cat, sat a server with 13 hard drives. The server hosted SciHub, a website with over 64 million academic papers available for free to anybody in the world. It was the reason that one day in June 2015, Alexandra Albacan, the student and programmer with a futurist streak and a love for neuroscience blogs, opened her email to a message from the world's largest publisher, you have been sued. You see, you're immediately pulled into that world. That's something you did for the reader. But I guess I'm curious, what pulled you into writing a story on SciHub and its founder and open access? I know, I know it's a little bit dated, but... It, it was the first thing I read from you, and I find it really interesting. So what pulled you into it? Um, well, for one thing, if I'm being completely honest, I used the hell out of the service. <laughs> <laughs> SciHub is, is essentially a, a group of sites that allow you to access the vast majority of published literature. And yes, there are ways for working journalists to also get around paywalls to access um, papers, uh, I, it's easier for, I would say, staff journalists than, than for freelancers. But especially when I was starting out and I didn't have many credits to my name and you know it was kind of a, a whole process to try and get approved for press credentials for anything, it was so much easier to simply copy the URL or the DOI, which uh, is sort of a, a counterpart to a URL just for academic papers, in paste it into SciHub site and be able to access you know, all the, the scientific literature I need. And that made my work essentially possible. I genuinely do not think I would continue to be in this line of work where I, you know, did I not have access to that service when I first started out. And yet despite that, the more I looked into the person behind it, the more I realized that every article that had been written on it, you can kind of tell when an interview has been conducted via email. Everything sounds more stilted. There's not the organic flow of a, a conversation. You can tell when somebody just emailed a bullet point of questions and somebody responded. And I was reading around, I was like, nobody's actually spoken to them, have they? Nobody's spoken to Alexander. So I just set about seeing if I could contact her. And you know, I had loosely tracked this idea for maybe a year or so, but then I finally found um, some genetics company uh, someone who worked there uh, was was associates with Alexandra, and they did a series of YouTube 
interviews. And so you know, I was able to find that person, get in contact with them, ask if they would put me in touch with Alexandra, and the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, so, well, would you agree that the, the, I guess before we get into that, maybe we should set the scene a little bit, a little bit more. What, what is the, what is the problem, I guess, with Sci-Hub? Now, maybe not a problem that you have, but what is the controversy surrounding this website that I'm sure many of the listeners of the show probably use? So... I would say there's there's a couple of uh, fronts here. So broadly speaking, it is it's piracy. Uh, it is out and out piracy. She is taking uh, articles that are hidden behind a paywall, and she is allowing people to access them. Uh, where a lot of people get into sort of the moral disagreements here is that the majority of research is public funded. So to a lot of open access advocates. Uh, the idea of then putting that research behind a paywall makes it sort of a twice-pay product. Mm-hmm. You know, the public's paying for it, but then they also have to pay to access the results. So that's what people, a lot of people would say in favor of her. On the other hand, uh, publishers would allege that you know, they add something of value. If you know, a researcher were just to try and put his results in any random hole in the internet, it's not going to get much attention. But especially when you look at a publisher like nature or science we're not just talking about simple copy editing here i mean they add metadata they convert uh any and all information into you know common file formats it's rounds and rounds of editing and typesetting uh coming up with graphics getting licensed photos to go along with it sending out press releases to journalists they even enforce what's uh known as an embargo period where uh, journalists get press releases several days before a study is actually run, and you're not allowed to report on that topic until that embargo is up, and that's creates sort of a, a competition. It's why, for any listeners that m- might not be familiar with it, it's why you get all these outlets reporting the same exact stories from the same uh, handful of journals at the same time. Uh, because of that embargo period. So there's definitely something to be said for the value that publishers add to that product. And when she then immediately makes it available to all after, you know, it, it depends um, what publisher you go to. I think the figures nature would say, and again, nature is in no way uh, emblematic of the, the sort of resources that every publisher puts into a, uh, a paper. But you look at some papers from nature and they would say that they put essentially thirty to $50,000 um, worth of, of capital into making that, that article ready to print and making sure that it goes in front of journalists. And now you've essentially made that free. Uh, again, that's definitely not every publication. A lot of other ones would say that their fees uh, that they rack up for, you know, just simple editing and, and publishing a story is you know, a couple of hundred, a, a few thousand. But still, there's that diverse there. Is this really uh, a twice pay product when you take a lot of publicly funded science and you put it behind a paywall? Or do publishers add something of value? And, you know, is it really that much of a problem when most of the people who need to access scientific information are academics themselves? So that is that's the moral diverge there. Well, I can I can totally get behind that idea. Okay, okay, publishers add value, and if they have to charge a price to put out this product, 
in the way that they have, and most of the people reading this anyway are institutions, okay, fine. I, can, I, I can't accept that, but I can accept it. And so let's say, is there, a, is there a consolidation, however, of these large research publication companies to where the control is getting more and more restricted to a few publishers than a larger, I guess, democratic market? Because it, it seems like, and I, I think you've even hinted to this in, in the article, that in 1973, for example, only 20% of, you know, academic scholarly research papers were published by the big five research publication companies, but that number seems to be going, to be increasing every year since 73. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's an out-and-out -out oligopoly. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it anything less. I mean, nowadays, more than half of research is published by the same big five publishers, which are Reed Elsevier, Wiley Blackwell, Springer Nature, Taylor and Francis, and depending on what metric you use, either the American Chemical Society or Sage Publishing. So, I mean, and that's just a generalized number. If you look at fields like psychology, you know, it's up to uh, you know over seventy percent essentially, and it's not just a matter of the amount of articles being published by those those handful of publishers. It's also a matter of uh, political influence as well. All of these companies. Are um, are lobbying interests. They do have a, a a decent degree of political power. Uh, not only have a number of them lobbied in favor of uh, a number of of bills that would um, restrict uh, piracy. They've also lobbied against a number of bills that would try to uh, make any publicly funded research. Um, force it to go into an open access repository after some degree of time. Uh, in fact, a number of them you know, had an outcry back in 2013 when the Obama administration uh, declared that any research conducted by uh, federal um, by federal organizations has to be put in an open access repository within 12 months. And when these publishers haven't been able to get uh, what they want via just out-and-out -out lobbying, they've also they established court precedent. In fact, if I got it in front of me here, uh, Elsevier is targeted about 17, uh, or Elsevier and 17 other publishers shut down uh, the repository library NU, uh, which was another piracy place. Um, Elsevier and another publisher, the AAP, uh, opposed uh, the Federal Research Public Access Act bill, the Public Access to Public Science Act bill, the Fair Access to Science and Technology research. All of them would have aimed to make more research uh, open access, and i.e. not hidden behind a paywall. And when that hasn't worked, they have not just sued a number of piracy places, but they're uh, Elsevier and American Chemical Society being the, the most vehement in their lawsuits, they've oftentimes filed injunctions that have essentially put pressure on uh, internet service providers to block not just piracy sites, but uh, anybody that would be considered so-and-so aiding and abetting uh, piracy sites, which is kind of a, a slippery slope. I mean, we. America got up in arms over SOPA and PIPA a couple of years back for essentially doing the same thing. But 
we're, you know, publishers are still sort of establishing precedents that would accomplish what those laws would have simply by way of establishing a lot of court precedents that are, are saying it's okay to put the pressure on ISPs, not just to block a site that's you know, guilty of piracy, but say uh, to force a search engine not to show any results of any sites that maybe mm -hmm. even contain a URL linking to that piracy site. That's, uh, that's kind of ham-fisted. So you, you so you would agree then that the implications of this story reach far beyond academic publishing into considering the place of ISPs, payment platforms, and publicly funded research. Oh, absolutely! It's uh, it's I would say it's pretty wide ranging, especially American Chemical Society's lawsuit uh, against um, against SciHub and Alexandra Elvikan. That that one uh, contained a, an injunction that was very direct. That uh, a number of of different sort of internet uh, freedom groups have opposed. And I mean, even looking outside the uh, the U.S. Uh, for one, I, earlier last year, I think around November, uh, Elsevier got SciHub and Library Genesis, um, twenty four different domains of them blocked in Austria. And so a lot of people are using uh, virtual private networks to get around them. And all the hubbub over SciHub uh, has, as of, I think, January uh, earlier this year, got the Department of Justice investigating SciHub and Alexandra uh, Elvacan over the idea that she could be linked to Russian intelligence, despite, as far as I'm aware, no real concrete evidence of that. This 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 is definitely this definitely interests me. So at the, at the center of this story, there seems to be this dichotomy between we have open access to information, the idea that institutional barriers to anything that could be conceived as an educational material, something you could learn from or expand your knowledge in a field, is just, in in my opinion, a, a crime against humanity. I mean, this is not allowing people to have information that they could use and learn from. And then at the other end, it's the idea of this is this is property of someone and they invested a large amount of money to make this a presentable product. Therefore they argue that you should pay for it. it it's a tough as, as, as someone who loves and does a lot of research, it's, it's tough place to be in where you fall on that, on that argument. Do you see the larger implications of this story of, of this argument over open access? Do you see it affecting your career as a science writer in a meaningful way? Well, I'd say the uh, the short-term answer would definitely be if they somehow managed to actually shut down all of Sci-Hub's uh, domains, because as it is, several have been shut down, but it's like whack-a-mole. You keep popping up, uh, Sci-Hub keeps popping up with new ones. If Sci-Hub and Library Genesis got shut down, my job would get, I would say, quite a bit harder. Mm -hmm. I'd have to put a lot more time into getting access properly to two articles that I need to access for work. So I would say, you know, simple answer, yes. Uh, for me specifically, I think that might be the biggest one. Um, for more long-term stuff, publishers seem to be doing as much as possible to deflect attention away from open access repositories, which are 
essentially just what they sound like. They're repositories where you can put um, scientific papers where people can access them. A lot of them, like um, archive or bio archive, uh, those are preprint or preprint uh, repositories where you can put the you know, the rough draft essentially of your research in there, and people can access it. Uh, there are other repositories where you can put the final product, but only after a certain period of time. Uh, say you did uh, research with a with the NIH uh, after I think it's six months or, or twelve months. Uh, the law forces that to be made open access, so people can access it through a paywall, or they can find a repository where now that paper has been put. The problem is that even though these repositories exist, it's a hodgepodge of different ones where it's difficult to for the uninitiated to find them, uh, to access the papers that they want, uh, compared to just copying a URL and pasting it in Sci-Hub. And publishers, uh, especially Elsevier, American Chemical Society, a few other ones, they've even uh, formed consortiums like um, the Coalition for Responsible Sharing, I think it is, uh, where they mention how you can access our open access research. Uh, and they, they mention a couple ones, uh, checking their open access uh, specific journals, uh, trying to go through the paywall, a couple of other options. But one they don't make mention of is, oh, well, you can go to these archives right here or these repositories right here to access it that way. So it seems like a lot of publishers are sort of trying to educate people away from those options and to deflect people's attentions away from those options, uh, deflect people's attentions away from sites like, say, ResearchGate, where sort of a social networking site for a lot of academics, where people tend to share papers. In fact, they've out and out sued ResearchGate uh, for allowing people to do that. So I think that could be another long-term effect, not necessarily so much for me personally, but the idea of educating people away from these and also essentially reshaping internet infrastructure to direct people away from anything that could be possibly construed as aiding or abetting piracy. I mean, that's It's a very ham-fisted power there. Yeah, no, and... I think it's indicative of a larger trend. I mean, increasingly, I go online to read an article that pops up on my newsfeed, and it is not academic writing. It's popular writing, but it, too, is locked behind a paywall. And with so much information locked behind a pay paywall, I feel as though it becomes increasingly cost-ineffective. I mean, for example, you wrote in the article that a year's subscription to a chemistry journal in the U.S. ran on average for about $4,773. The cheapest subscriptions were to general science journals, which only cost about $1,500 a year. I mean, as uh, how what could possibly account for such a high cost? Or, or rather, I think the better question would be, this doesn't seem like something that universities could continue to fund. I mean, have you seen any evidence of that, of colleges having to say, we can't afford some of these journal subscriptions. We, we can no longer provide this to our students. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, really, the only effective way for a lot of people to access scientific uh, literature, if they have to access a lot of it, is through institutions like colleges and universities. 
because they tend to make deals with publishers to pay a certain amount to access that. I mean, if you were just trying as an individual to get a subscription to these, good luck with the amount of money you're going to have to spend. Not everything you need is going to be published in one journal. Uh, so you know, paying $1,500 for it, even on the low end, is kind of uh, a bit ridiculous. So you'd have to go through an institution, and a number of institutions have started fighting back. I mean, and it's, it's not just now. I mean, back in, I think, uh, 2005, it was something like 7,000 or 17,000 academics um, wanted to petition to boycott um, Elsevier. And in more recent years, there uh, was like a consortium of uh, German universities uh, that uh, went on something of a limited boycott against some of the big five publishers, against Elsevier, against Springer Nature, and they held out for quite some time before making a deal um, with them. And even then, it, they rather than paying uh, for their subscription to these these journals or to these publishers and all the journals that they produce, which keep in mind that's a wide umbrella for something like Elsevier, they have thousands of journals under their title. Uh, rather than paying a random subscription fee, rather now the universities are basing the fee off of the articles that they think they're going to publish through the service. And there's been different forms of deals uh, made with them. And more recently, the um, uh, a number of Californian universities, uh, which essentially count for 10% of the sort of scientific research paper output in the U.S., uh, have just held off of Elsevier services entirely. They haven't made a deal with them uh, whatsoever. And there are some services that allow people to essentially uh, loan or, or rent materials from one library through another. So a lot of people are using that. They're essentially, even though they're in that, that group of California universities, they are going through other libraries to access the materials they need. Mm -hmm. And from all intents and purposes, as far as we can see, it doesn't seem like it's been a major issue for those yeah. California universities. They seem to be surviving quite well without Elsevier's products, which you know, kind of makes you wonder why some universities are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to access these services. So a lot of universities are starting to push back more aggressively these days against the big five publishers. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, let me run, I guess, this in plain English. The publishing companies have increasingly consolidated with more and more work going to a smaller group of publishing companies. Thereby, these publishing companies are able to set prices for their journals, which have increased as years have gone on. And it's so prohibitive, in fact, that most people only get access to these journals through institutional means. But even then, institutions, for the most part, may not be able to keep up with this continued hiking in price. And then this is the other side of that. Let's say I work at a research, research center, and it's publicly funded, meaning that either through grants or some other avenue, taxpayer dollars are funding my work. It's still possible then that that work will end up behind a publisher's paywall, or essentially the average person who is a taxpayer ends up paying twice for the same product. I mean, that, I'd say that's a pretty accurate representation of the, the lay of the land there. Uh, and 
I think it also taps into to a broader discussion that we've been having. A lot of people might have heard of there being an issue with only positive results, uh, positive correlations being published. I, I think the question here is what extent of scientific data should be publicly available? Because we've talked about uh, research that is funded by the public uh, and whether or not that should be considered a twice-pay product when it's hidden behind a paywall. A lot of people, I think, might agree that, well, if taxpayer money is is funding this research, then it should be available to taxpayers. But what about when we have instances of you know, private institutions who are funding research that is you know, concerning, say, public health, but they tend to bury negative results or just not publish negative uh, results of studies, and you only get the the sort of positive correlations actually uh, debuting in papers. There's a, a, an overarching question here, I think, of whether the issue should be looked at of, uh, is this a matter of should a project or should research that has been funded by the public uh, be made public, or rather, is it just a matter of research that concerns the public and has potential implications for uh, for public health and for public advancement, should all of that uh, be made public? And if you ask someone like Alexandra, uh, who had SciHub, she believes in you know, a, a philosophy that was pioneered by Robert Merton, the idea of scientific communism, which uh, a major tenet of it is that all results of research should be made public because it all concerns the public. It is information for everyone. So I think, you know, that this whole issue sort of taps into that overarching um, philosophical question. Is the matter here just, you know, public paid for it so public should access it, or it doesn't matter who paid for it. Ultimately, mm -hmm. this all concerns the public. Should they have access to it regardless of the circumstance of how that research was created? And, and that's, uh, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems to be like a radical statement to make, that there is no, there is no differentiation, that all scientific research is public research. Because, I mean, as far as I've seen, it seems like there's this, there's this divide between popular science writers and academic scientists, and it seems to be a, a contested one. I mean, I recall uh, Carl Sagan ran into flack for doing Cosmos and his work with PBS. The, is, it, is it true that the thought goes that, like, if someone's doing, you ask yourself, why is this person doing popular science? Why are they educating the public? If they're real scientists, why are they wasting their time without research? Shouldn't they be doing real research? I, I feel like uh, people have opened up a lot more to the idea of scientists devoting time to scientific communication. But the idea of you know, the degree uh, to which information should be made open access, that's definitely still a contentious thing. I mean, there's no unification really among open access advocates. Someone like Alexandra is on a very uh, different level than, say, um, Peter Subair, who is, uh, I believe, still the director of Harvard's open access project. Someone like Peter, um, or Peter Subair, he would advocate that you uh, only achieve open access through means of uh, through legal means that would either be publishing in an open access journal or if it's behind a paywall after a period of time it has to be put in a repository 
versus, say, Alexandra, whose ideology would be something a lot more radical, it doesn't really matter who's paying for the research, whether you think it's twice paid or not. What matters is we say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, so why should not all of that information be shouted out from atop those shoulders? I mean, if this has been the culmination of work by so many people, for so many people, then just give it to everyone. Yeah. So there's a lot of different schools of thoughts on this and a lot mm -hmm. less unification than, than someone might might believe. Yeah, and it, it seems... And the reason I keep pressing on this on you is because I, I think it's a it's an issue that we are confronted with. I mean, even right now, and um, I mean, you, you spoke on how it's pretty much impossible to escape coverage on COVID-19 or the, and the coronavirus in any kind of science writing. And that's the real focus. The open access movement might be in part of the antidote for many people's concerns. Cause a large concern I see among people in academia is this idea that misinformation is so readily available. These conspiracy theory videos surrounding COVID-19 or the idea that it's, you know 5G is somehow spreading the disease and what, a lot of bad science and a lot of misinformation. I mean, would you agree with the statement that perhaps if open access was something that was more widely accepted, people could have access to real scientific research and data and be less prone to buying in? to this mis misinformation that's so readily available? I'm honestly not entirely sure because on one hand, more information is great, but I'm not always sure more information is necessarily better information. Um, while the rise of open access publications uh, has been you know, pretty perspicuous and, and I'd say great overall, uh, I would say there's also a correlation between that and the rise of predatory publishers. Predatory publishers having somewhat of a similar uh, business model in that they, uh, like a lot of open access publications, they would charge a, a fee to an academic in order to publish that, that paper. And this doesn't apply for every open access journals, but a lot of them, like uh, PLOS1 being one of the, the really big ones, uh, I think PLOS charges something like 45 no, no, no. That was fifteen hundred, I think, for PLOS one, and for scientific reports, is forty-five hundred dollars for an academic to be able to report their paper, and that's not necessarily out of pocket. Uh, you know, a grant might be able to cover that, um, but still, a predatory publisher would have a similar business model. They oftentimes tend to more aggressively solicit scientists to send their research to them. They would charge the scientists a fee, and then they would rubber stamp it. And I think for the uninitiated who, who don't have a whole lot of experience in you know, knowing uh, what publishers are reputable and which one are not, because again, there are thousands of academic journals, and there's something like, I think, uh, I want to say it was either 2.5 or 25 million. That's just a small order of a magnitude difference there. <laughs> papers published uh, worldwide each year, that's, that's very difficult for people to know whether or not they, you know, they're accessing a genuine open access publication or a predatory one unless they just stick to the big names. Uh, so I would say that I don't know if more information not necessarily qualifies as better information. Yeah. I think uh, the problem there is just people aren't well equipped 
to deal with the information overload. People are taught how yes. to, yeah, I mean, even in school, people are taught how to write a research paper, but how many people are taught how to really critically analyze information, how to see logical fallacies, how to uh, accurately gauge the credibility of a site, I think we're still very much behind in that in that respect. I know you can't see this, but my hands are in Shut the air. Yes. I knew there was a reason I had you on the show. I could not agree more. I think it really boils down to an educational one. I would agree that more information is not necessarily good information. But if you were to supply more information and have a populace who is trained to critically read, break down, analyze, detect bias, all of these things in articles, I, I don't see how it would not be a net positive. I mean, I don't, I've never heard of, a, of an organization or a society or a group of people collapsing because they had too much information. Now, I've certainly heard of organizations and people totally discrediting themselves from, from misinformation. And I think, this, I think this links in rather nicely to our whole conversation. I remember when we were emailing, talking about doing this show, you, you immediately said, this is a history show. I'm a sucker for all things history. Can we talk about Henry Ford? And uh, I, I, th I, think, I think this falls into our broader conversation with misinformation and, and conspiracy and trained populists to detect these kind of things and, you know, and open access to academic writing. You want to tell us about uh, Henry Ford for those who don't know necessarily about everything he's done? I mean, I think everyone basically understands that he, the Ford Motor Company, I mean, it was a huge and is a huge player in the American economy. But uh, in 1918, Henry Ford purchases his hometown newspaper, Yearport Independent. What happens next? Uh, I, I need to thank you first, because uh, for the readers of this podcast, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and address you directly. This wonderful gentleman here uh, is allowing me an opportunity to just go ahead and talk about something that I've been wanting to write about for a couple of years, and nobody's particularly bidden. So uh, understand that your wonderful host here is a very... Very generous individual. I'll just leave that there. Um, <laughs> I appreciate so, it. Creative freedom. It's all I'm about. <laughs> so Henry Ford, for some time, ran the Dearborn Independent. And people may be you know, somewhat uh, aware of uh, Henry Ford's issues of anti-Semitism. But I think one of my favorite sayings about uh, Henry Ford was, I'm trying to remember who... Who said it? Uh, I think it was a, a reporter who once interviewed him said, outside of business where he's a genius, his mind is that of a child. He was uh, quite susceptible to, to, to conspiracy theories and to accusations against people. And mind you, he did have a number of sort of forward-thinking uh, forward policies in his, his factories, for example. He hired people really without uh, regard for for uh, for sex or, or race, but he did so because that benefited him and his factories. The Dearborn Independent became a, a mouthpiece for a lot of his anti-Semitism uh, to the extent that he even published a uh, compilation of articles on essentially conspiracy theories about how Jewish people are controlling every aspect of society, which was compiled into... Uh, wonderful little pamphlet called The International Jew, 
it's a four set volume of ampli- of anti-Semitic book, uh, booklets and, and pamphlets, and it was actually a favorite read of uh, of Hitler. Uh, so much so that in Mein Kampf, there is actually only one American mentioned uh, anywhere in the book, and it is Henry Ford. He's given the wonderful nickname Heinrich Ford uh, by Hitler. Yeah. So this seems so, to be the, the the classic split, and one that I think is increasingly in the public consciousness, especially surrounding the the, the Me Too movement and whatnot, is this uh, conversation about how do you or can you separate a person from their work? Because as you mentioned, Henry Ford, in his work with the Ford Motor Company, forward-thinking revolutionary individual, but his other endeavors, anti-Semitic, racist, I mean, it, it's hard to... You have to look at the whole person, but can you judge the person based on work and their other proclivities i it's a tough question and i I think he is emblematic of that i i think for me in this case it's it's more clear-cut just because henry ford had one really good idea production chain and that's that was pretty much it the rest of a lot of his career how people tried to groom him for presidency despite the fact that he didn't know about the american revolution um that yeah he can't that, just leave that hanging. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah, no. He really didn't have much of a concept about the American Revolution, period. He was full of, of a lot of misunderstandings about the, the history of America. And when interviewed, he, he just generally would always seem clueless. Mm. I mean, he's, he was not a very well-educated individual in any respect whatsoever, uh, and I think just about the the only people who really gave him him praise for his uh, for his political ideas were well a lot of people who were in the uh, Nazi regime in Germany. In fact, there was a uh, let's see, uh, I'm trying to remember what the quote was. We look on Heinrich Ford as the leader of the growing fascist movement in America. We admire particularly his anti-Jewish policy, which is the Bavarian pa- uh, fascist platform. We have just had his anti-Jewish articles translated and published. The book is being circulated to millions throughout Germany. The uh, newsman, upon uh, investigation, found that Ford's books were indeed being distributed by the carloads. And this is, that was the sort of praise he, he got in Germany. Yeah. Uh, so I'd, I'd say for me is a, a little bit more clear cut and what I found particularly interesting was his uh, his spats with uh, or I shouldn't say direct spats but how his his publication became a mouthpiece for uh, what was known at the time as anti Einsteinism or, or anti uh, relativity uh, theorism which was very thinly veiled anti-semitism by a lot of German scientists who were trying to discredit Einstein and his theory of relativity just based off of the fact that he was Jewish. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it, it's totally clear that Henry Ford is, I mean, anti-Semitic. And in, in judging him, I think that should be one of the front and center things. I mean, I was reading about the famous conspiratorial pamphlet, the the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and how he essentially what republished that and distribute it in America to thousands of people as well. I mean, he, he did a lot to spread anti-Semitic thinking in the United States 
and a barrage. Oh. What makes you so interested in the story? Honestly, I, I, when I just heard that essentially Henry Ford had a publication that was serving as a mouthpiece against Einstein and that it also uh, it, it was related to this sort of consortium of scientists, which included two Nobel laureates of the day who uh, used this, this community that was being built simply around opposing Jewish science to take pot shots at Einstein. That's another example of sort of the, the story behind the science that I find particularly interesting. Yeah. And yeah. there was one researcher um, who had a column in the Dearborn Independent, Arvid Ruderdahl. He had uh, a column that a lot of it ended up being based on making these sort of thought, uh, experimenty, uh, rhetorical arguments against the theory of relativity after it had already been proven that had no basis in, in mathematism. And a lot of it was based simply on Ruderdahl's objection to this nebulous concept, which he called the, the abstraction of science, which seemed to revolve around math being increasingly used in the field of physics rather than, than practical experimentation. And uh, Ruderdahl uh, became sort of a, a, I wouldn't necessarily say a confidant, but uh, somebody who regularly communicated with German scientists uh, back home, including um, Philippe Lenard and Ernst uh, Gerck uh, and Johannes Stark. Uh, Johannes Stark and, and Philippe Lenard being two, two Nobel laureates of their day who also uh, wanted to oppose anything vehemently related to, to Einstein. And so the Dearborn Independent almost became this, this platform where all of these people um, were, were put in communication with each other to be able to uh, try and com uh, to communicate on what they considered the issue of, of Jews and of what they called Jewish science. Why did I say science? I meant Jewish science. Pronounce that correctly. Uh, and it, it's just sort of a, a fascinating story to me of anti-intellectualism by what would otherwise be astounding intellects because ultimately the rejection here isn't based on any sort of scientific scrutiny it was based off of not just fear of jewish people but in uh among a lot of scientists fear for their career and fear for their field because when the theory of relativity was published it was oftentimes proclaimed as the death of newtonian physics in, that's not entirely accurate. It's more like it picks up where Newtonian physics leaves off. But all of a sudden, you had a lot of people who felt like their career, their uh, field of study, had been threatened. And so they acted react Well, they just acted reactively to that. And I think it goes to show that even people who can be highly intelligent, well-trained in rational thought, when we just have knee-jerk reactions to something, all of that can go right out the window, and we can devote uh, undue time and effort to trying to discredit something not based on the merit of that idea, but rather just based on the strength of our fear. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, it's like a perverted version of the rhetorical device called Hitchens' razor, the idea that that which is uh, put forward without any evidence can also be dispelled without any evidence uh, but it, it's 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 the distorted version that there's these things that are presented with evidence 
but since you do not support the conclusions, therefore you dismiss it without evidence. It's this, it's this strange perversion that I think is actually a nice compliment to the last episode I just did on Dirty History, which was about anti-intellectualism in the United States. It, it, it's, it's an interesting chapter in American history when looking at Henry Ford. And I think there's, there's this strange relationship Americans have with American history that I find, I find very interesting. There's, there's people who just have a firm grasp of the national history or of international history. They understand the, the attitudes, the, the methodology of doing history. And then there's some who take a, a mythologized version of U.S. history where it's not really history. It's basically mythology, a patchwork of stories. I mean, when you learn about Henry Ford in school, I don't really remember much about the Dearborn Independent or anti-Semitism. What you hear about is the production line and uh, the making of the modern American industrial system and things like that. There, there's pieces that get left out. There's a, a saying I, I try to keep, which is disgust and fear of the death of debate. Uh, and I would say disgust in particular, because the things that disgust us are the things we make the least effort to understand. Even things that we fear, curiosity can can sort of bring us back into it. But you know, let's just, if I were to just think of uh, something that invokes disgust right off the, the top of my head, I'll just bring, um, let's try this, one word, uh, insight. Immediately, some of your viewers probably just recoiled. That's a word that it, it, it has such a deeply ingrained thing of disgust to it that you probably never in your life tried to contemplate or, or, or figure out why someone might uh, you know, think that or be attracted to that or anything along those lines. When we are disgusted by a thing, we don't want to understand it. We don't want to put any forth any effort, even when there may be some some merit to understanding the the psychology or the sociology behind something. And for a lot of people, you know, something like evolution can evoke the same sense of disgust. And for a lot of American history, it did because it so inherently goes against something core to to someone's personal belief that they immediately react against it and they don't want to take the time to try to understand it. So I think that, you know, this is sort of a, a, another story of that. Uh, a lot of the scientists here were reacting either out of fear or disgust. Some people fear for their field, other people disgust out of an entire group of people mm -hmm. to the point where the arguments against the thing they were making many times had nothing to do with science whatsoever. They were willing to set aside the system of inquiry and analysis that they have been trained in over the course of decades something that had been the founding of their being to just knee-jerk at something simply because that's instinct. Everything you just said there, I have so many notes that I took down because you, you hit on so many different central tenets of, of dirty history. I mean, the tagline, for example, of our website and of the podcast is discussing the disgusting, where that's that's our main focus. Is I mean, we have a, we're work, I'm working on an episode on the psychology of disgust right now. And I, I, you kind of... Um, the, sp the speakers didn't do you justice when you... What was that word you said automatically triggers a disgust response? Did you say incest? Yeah, I said that one, but I think there's... Perhaps now that I think about it, there's a, another good example, actually from a uh, an Atlantic article I read uh, a while back. It was several years ago, they had 
an article that was written by a pedophile. Not a child molester, but a pedophile. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between those two. One is one that has an attraction to children. Another uh, one is somebody who's actually acted upon it to assault someone. But nobody ever makes an attempt to distinguish between these. And just the fact that the Atlantic had somebody who came out as a pedophile write an article in there, a lot of people reacted very strongly against that when that article was published a couple of years ago without even reading the article whatsoever because that immediately triggers disgust. We don't want to understand the things that disgust us. Even if there's value in understanding the psychology there to help people away from potentially isolating themselves to the point where they reach what I call the precipice of, and, and pardon my French, I don't know the uh, the standards for language on, on your podcast too well, but uh, what I call the precipice of Mount Fucket, uh, which is the point at which somebody feels such a sense of loss or isolation where they just say, fuck it, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And that's the story for a lot of you know pedophiles who turn into, into child molesters. That's the point. You know, that's the psychology of a, of a lot of things, I think. And to understand where someone is coming from, even if you don't want to, can ultimately help you understand how to avoid tragedy. But we don't want to do that because we're disgusted by the very thought, the very concept, the very word uh, you know, of something like pedophile that you, we just want to distance ourselves away from. It. No, I, I, I totally understand that. And I, I'm in the same boat as you are. I think there is merit in discussing these things. I mean, I've made an entire podcast out of it where it's particularly, I take, I take issue with your um, idea that incest is inherently this thing that disgusts people. If anything, I would say that if you look at pop culture, we have this strange obsession with it. I mean, think of like game of Thrones or uh, was it the one show called taboo? There's plenty of TV shows and pop cultural examples of this. It's it's just a it's such an interesting topic to me. I don't want to get into it too, too much because it's it's an upcoming episode we're doing. But I, I found it very interesting that you that you mentioned that as an example. But this has been great. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I, it's been it's been absolutely a pleasure. Uh, I'm definitely going to to have to set aside some more time to stay up to date on the podcast. I, I regret that I hadn't heard of it before you reached out to me, but uh, I'm, you got another viewer. That's, that's fantastic to hear. I mean, that's, that, that, that's, people think I have guests on because I, I love to talk to people. It, it's really just a covert way of spreading the show to other people. No one's in on that secret yet. So <laughs> now nah, I'm just messing with you. I, I, re- I really, um, I enjoy your work. I enjoy your writing. Um, definitely I'll be checking to see when you have new stories up I find you a refreshing science writer it's it's readable it's as a human element to it I I really buy into it so again thank you uh, you do fantastic work and um, anywhere where people can stay up to date with what you're working on you got a Twitter or something like that I would say Twitter is probably one of the better ones so is um, Muckrack if you really want to keep up to date Muckrack is just Type muckrack into Google and then type in my name, Ian Graber Steele. You'll come up with me. And and Twitter, let's see if I can remember my Twitter handle off the top of my head. I can. Uh, Steele Point Pen, because, yeah, I know. It's, it's very bad. I don't know why I didn't say Steele Writing, but it's spelled like my last name, S-T-I-E-H-L, and then Point and Pen. And 
God, I regret not making that steel writing. That <laughs> would have been clever. No, I, I, I enjoy uh, I enjoy it. Um, I'll be sure to put those in the description of the show. And uh, Muckrack should be easy enough for everyone to understand. Our producer for this episode is uh, Muckraker Media, which is a nonprofit podcast network, which aims to apply the principles of open access to educational material broadly beyond science writing. So I think there's this nice uh, connection between what we're talking about here and what my actual mission is overall and um i'm surprised how well this all came together i mean uh, kind of our all of our topics have this nice through line it's going to be pretty easy to categorize once i put it up <laughs> yeah although i mean towards the end though it started sounding like hentai tax but I, I digress um but uh, this has absolutely been one of the uh more pleasurable interviews i've, I've been able to do uh i you know what? I will say though, uh, the coffee I'm drinking now is far better than the the one that they served over at NPR. But that's mostly because we're doing this, or I'm doing this interview on my end from my house. So uh, this probably puts it over NPR just for that reason. The coffee's better. You you heard it here, folks. That that is the that's the endorsement I've been looking for. That <laughs> that's what we need. Hey, thanks again. All right, you have a good day. Stay safe.